Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Long and Shortest Time is brought to you by Invite. Your genes can tell you if you're 12% French or 6% Italian. They can also tell you a lot about your future health. When you take an Invite genetic test, they search for meaningful health information, like whether you're at an increased risk for inherited cancer or heart disease. Based on your results, you may be able to take steps to potentially lower that risk. Learn more by visiting Invite.com. That's I-N-V-I-T-A-E dot com. A couple months ago, I got an email from a listener. She's actually a pediatrician. She's got this incredible story that I can't wait to share with you. Um, Her story's got all these highs and lows about her childbirth and breastfeeding. There's lots and lots of spit up. Um, And her experience with all of that has totally changed the way she approaches her job, the way she deals with patients. And reading her story, it struck me just how similar our stories of early motherhood were. Like we had a lot of the same struggles. And I figured she probably went into pregnancy and childbirth with the same worries that I had. You know, I thought I had a pretty good handle on it, actually. Jessica Franklin is a mother of two. Six years ago, she was pregnant with her first child. The image I had in my head was that I wouldn't get a lot of sleep, but I was—I had done a medical residency and for four years. I, I'm used to not sleeping. I can do not no sleep. I've done it. Um... And I thought I honestly, because I had medical knowledge of babies, I thought, well, I'm probably coming out of this ahead of most parents. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. Today, I talked to pediatrician Jessica Franklin about her transition from overconfident doctor to actual mom. So Jessica's story starts six years ago when her water broke just two days before her due date. She and her husband drove to Vassar Brothers Medical Center in Poughkeepsie, the hospital where they both work as physicians. So everyone there knows them. And I got to the hospital and they took my blood pressure and it was high, which is not me at all. And they said, well, maybe it's because you're having a contraction. I said, I wasn't having a contraction. Take it again. They checked it again. It was high. And uh, the obstetrician came in and told me that he thought that maybe I had some mild preeclampsia and that he was going to put me on magnesium, which is the treatment for preeclampsia. And just um, explain what preeclampsia is. Certainly. It's basically where before, right before you deliver or during the delivery and sometimes after, you can have elevated blood pressure, um, headaches, and you can actually have... um, protein in your urine. Um, and if it's not treated, it can lead to seizures and the death of the mother. If you've seen Downton Abbey, spoiler alert, this is what Sybil dies from. But it's very easily recognized and very easy to treat. So I had it. So they put me on magnesium. 
And I was shocked at how poor it made me feel. I was like flushed. I was flushed. I couldn't tell if it was just the, you know, going through labor or what, but... Is that how you're supposed to feel on magnesium? You know, it's funny, Hillary, no one ever said that to me. I never, and I'd seen patients on magnesium before, and I'd heard them describe that they just didn't feel well, but I had no idea what it was to feel that way. I always considered myself someone in pretty good control, and I had no idea what it was like to feel completely out of control and out of sorts. It just didn't feel like I could put two thoughts together. Had you ever been a patient in a hospital before? Never. Never. I hadn't even really been to an emergency room before, except for like when I broke my finger when I was eight. (laughs) But then the anesthesiologist came in. He did my epidural. I was nervous during the epidural, but it went well and the pain just disappeared. So I thought, oh, this is great. I went to sleep. When I woke up, I felt pressure and I said, oh, maybe this is it. They came in, checked me and they said, yep, you're pretty much ready to push. I said, hey, all right. But as it turns out, the presentation of his head was not straight up and down. It was sort of, his head was like cocked to the side, Mm. you know, like his head was almost like leaning on his shoulder. So the part that comes out is larger than it should be. And um, I didn't know that. So as I'm pushing him out, the doctor at one point said, you know, you can take a break. And that was like oh, no, I'm not taking a break. This is happening, you know? <laughs> it was like as an option. Yeah, you know, it's sort break. of like, you could. why don't you take a break? And um, my husband even remarks that I was like, I don't need a break. And I just gave another big push. I didn't know that he really wanted me to take a break. And I think he wanted me to take a break so that maybe I could stretch a little bit. And um, I kind of saw him, reach for something. I couldn't see everything, obviously. And my husband said he saw him reach basically to get scissors to cut an episiotomy. And um, the fact that he didn't say anything, I don't know. I don't know. It did surprise me a little bit that maybe, and maybe it's because I'm a medical professional that I felt that I should be apprised of everything (laughs) occurring. But wait, is that, is that legal to cut an episiotomy without getting consent from the mother or telling the mother? You know, Hillary, I think it's actually a part of the paperwork that you fill out in terms of consents when you first come to the hospital, that if it's necessary. And I think that most OBs, if you ask them to tell you in advance that you want to know, or you say to them, I do not want that, that they cannot perform it. But I didn't say anything like that, nor did I have a real problem with it. I think I was just, I think I was a little surprised that I didn't, it wasn't mentioned to me. But I knew right afterwards that something was more significant because as I'm, you know, holding the baby, um, look, I look down, you know, and right between my legs, basically at the obstetrician's head, and he's kind of bent over, really looking concentrated and serious, and he's sweating, (laughs) and I'm like, "What's he doing down there?" Like, and then like 30 minutes go by and he's still down there. And I'm like, what is happening? And so I look over at my husband and he's kind of looking down there too, uh, which I'm not totally thrilled about because I'm like, I don't really want you to see all of that at this point. You know, I'm thinking it looks like a big mess. Mm -hmm. And I realize 
he's doing something. And um, I don't know if it was the magnesium. I'd like to think that if I had my head on straight, I would have realized what he was doing. But uh, he just looked up at me finally and he said, you had a little bit of a tear. And I said, okay. Is everything okay? And he's like, yep. Yep. And I was like, okay. Do what you have to do. I remember saying that. I said, do what you have to do. It's fine. He's like, we'll have to keep the magnesium going for a little while. I said, okay. And um, I was just so thrilled to have a healthy newborn. And um, it was really, I would say, about three or four hours after that, that I started having more and more pain. And I thought, this I didn't expect. I did not expect to have this much pain after delivery. I thought, doesn't that get better? You know, doesn't, and why is it getting worse? I kept looking at my husband. I said, it's bad. The pain is really bad. I don't know if it's the magnesium. It's making me not think straight about it, but the pain is bad. And the nurse came in and she said, okay, well, and she offered me some Tylenol, which I, which I took. And then I started like feeling really nauseous. And of course, at that time, like the lactation consultant comes in and I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to nurse, try and nurse again, but I'm like having a lot of pain. I'm really having a lot of pain. And Wait, nurse again, because you, did you nurse uh, yeah, as soon as, as Marco soon, was yes, born? Yes, right after he was born, I was And, and how did him. that go? Um, it was goofy, right? <laughs> it was like, didn't, you know, latch on that well, but, you know, I thought, well, this I know. And I always told patients, you know, it's a dance. It's like learning to dance with somebody. You know, they don't know how to dance, really. You don't know how to dance. you got to learn to dance together. And that's, that's what breastfeeding is like. So I didn't expect it to go immediately well. And I was glad when the lactation consultant came in. But I said, I'm just worried because I'm having so much pain. And so she had tried to get me to, to nurse and lay on my side and do it. And I'm like, the baby was crying and I was uncomfortable. And I said, you know, I, I think you're going to have to come back. I, I can't do this now. And I think that when I realized I was in too much pain to even try and nurse, that something was really wrong. I just kept telling my husband, something's wrong, something's wrong. And um, I don't know if it's because we know what it's like to deal with difficult patients. I think both of us were like, somewhat reluctant to be really pushy. Because what do you, what do you think about patients who are pushy? Um, I think that, I think that it's, it's sometimes doctors think of patients who are really pushy as just being people they actually want to ignore. And I think what I wanted to do was be respectful of the fact that, you know, um, the doctors have said it's okay. Everyone says it's okay. This must be normal. Doesn't really feel normal, but maybe this is part of the experience that I just don't know anything about. And it was actually really helpful that my mom was there. My mom is just my mom. She's not a doctor. She's no medical training. And she said, well, I don't remember very much about this, but I don't really think it's supposed to hurt this much this far out. I'm just telling you, I think it's not good. So wait, when, when the doctor was sweating and doing <laughs> what he was doing for half an hour, what was going on? Was he sewing you up? Yep. He yeah. was sewing me up. And, and it um, took that long to it do. Took, it took him 45 minutes to do it. 
and I just didn't put two and two together with that, that it was that significant of a tear. And um, I would say after another couple of hours, I finally turned to my husband and I said, I can feel the stitches and it feels like they're about mm-hmm. to tear open. I was yeah. like, you have to do something. That is such a familiar feeling to me. The feeling of the stitches was that was the craziest thing. What isn't it? I, I and just you, and you picture it, right? You picture yes, them. I did. I thought I, I'm picturing in my head what this must look like, and I said, "It's like they're just being pulled apart." And at that point, um, the nurse came in and offered me Percocet for pain, and I said, "I'm so sick. I don't think I could." I don't think I could take a perk set. I think I'd just throw up. And I said, it has to be something that you give me in the vein because I don't think it would sit in my stomach. I'm just so, so sick. And the doctor came in to check on me and he's like kind of giving me the thumbs up, you know. And I'm looking at him and I said, I just feel so bad. This is the same doctor who delivered the baby? Yeah. And he said, well, we'll have somebody check on you later. And this is around the time the nurse came in with the pain medication. She gave it to me in the IV. And I remember my mother saying, doctor, don't you think she looks a little pale? And it's like, I was just, that's the last thing I remember because they gave me the pain medication and I just passed out. We'll be back with Jessica when she wakes up in just a minute. Moms, if you live in the New York area, we've got an event coming up just for you. Speed dating for mom friends. This is your chance to meet some moms you really click with. It's happening at the Bell House in Brooklyn on Wednesday, October 22nd at 7 p.m. Tickets are on sale now. You can get them at longestshortesttime.com in the soon section. And if you're bummed that you have to miss out on this, make a meetup in your hometown. Our listeners are getting together all over the country to meet each other. Go to the meetups map on our website. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. When we left off, Jessica had passed out. And um, when I woke up, I looked up and like, like really sad looking bookends on either side of my bed were my husband and, and my mother. And I look at my husband and I can recognize he's got his very serious kind of game face on, doctor game face. And uh, I look at my mother and she looks frightened. And so I just kind of like look around me for a second and I can see like the blood transfusion going in. And I'm like, okay, I know what that is, but I don't really know what's happening here. Cause the last thing I remember is they're giving me pain medicine and I don't, I don't have any idea what's happening. So my husband, I said to him what happened and he ex- starts to explain it to me, you know, you have a third degree tear, and you have a very large hematoma, which is a blood collection um, in the vaginal area. And they don't know if it's getting worse or if it's stopping. This is, you're getting a blood transfusion. You may need to go to the operating room tonight. And I just looked at him and I looked at my mom and I looked at him. And again, as I'm saying these words to you now, Hillary, I know exactly what they mean. But at that moment, I really didn't understand what he was talking about. And I just looked at him and I said, should I be scared? 
and he didn't know what to say. And my mother, you know, starts getting upset. And it was then that I realized how when people are getting pain medicine or they're really sick, even though you can explain things to them in terms that they would completely understand, they don't always really understand. And it's completely changed how I approach people like that. That, If anything out of this process I've, I could take away and I say I'm really thankful for, I'm really thankful for that experience of knowing what that felt like. So was the bleeding from the preeclampsia or is it from the magnesium? So um, I had also developed a mild case of something called health syndrome, which is basically a constellation of having a low platelet count. You know, platelets are the, are the cells that clot your blood. Um, so my platelet count was on the low side. Um, the magnesium kind of prevents the muscles from contracting well. Um, and um, then the tear was like this kind of unfortunate perfect storm to have bleeding. And so that was, you know, really what, why it happened. So it sounds like medical training does not train you to be a patient. Oh, no. Not at all. Not at all. They try. You know, they'll, they, they kind of try to make you understand that. Um, and even in pediatrics, they often have you try the medicines that children have to take, like the liquid medicines. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever had your, to taste your, anything your daughter has to take, if she's ever had to take any medications, but so many of them taste horrible. They do try to get you, give you an idea of what it's like. But I think really until you've either been a patient yourself or been sick, you really, I, I had no idea. I had no idea. I was completely at the mercy of this process that was occurring in my body that I had zero control over. I now had no control over what it was going to be like to take care of my son. I didn't know if that would mean that I wasn't going to be able to nurse him. I didn't know. So my concept of what this whole process was going to be like just shifted radically. I had, I had no idea. And I had no idea what was in store. For, I thought that was the hard part. That was not the hard part. The hard part was going home. How many days did you stay in the hospital? Mm, four. Four days. And um, the pain got much worse when I got home. It was much better controlled in the hospital. And um, I needed basically an ice pack on me all the time. So my husband had to create, we have a two-story house. He had to create an apartment upstairs for us because I couldn't climb the stairs. And even then they said, well, try not to, you know, put a lot of pressure on that area. I said, what do you mean? Like, I have to sit. And they said, well, try not to sit on it. (laughs) I said, what do you mean, try not to sit on it? How else do you sit (laughs) except right there? And so I was like laying on my side all the time and, you know, doing these ridiculous sits baths and, As I was leaving the hospital, I asked them, I said, well, when do I need to be seen? And they said, oh, we can see you in six weeks. I said, six weeks? Okay, if you say so. But it seems like I should have this checked maybe sooner. I don't know. And they said, no, if everything's going okay, you should be fine. And uh, 
the stitches started to open up. And again, because you can't see that area that well without, you know, two mirrors, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a while before I think I realized it. And then when I got in there and to see the doctors, I mean, when I realized it was opening up, they told me, you know, well, this is going to have to heal from the inside out now. And there's going to be a fair amount of scarring. Um, And it was just being at home with a newborn and having pain and feeling nervous about taking pain medicine when you are breastfeeding a newborn. You know, I'd be like, well, you know, I need to take some pain medicine. So I'm going to take some pain medicine. And I'd be like, should I, is it okay to feed him now? I'm not sure. And then the other thing I didn't realize, Hillary, is that when you're that anemic and your blood counts are that low, I've now been told that maybe you don't make as much milk at first. And so I didn't feel like I was producing very much milk. And so I'm feeding him and I'm pumping and I'm having my husband feed him on, like, I wouldn't even let him give a bottle. I was so worried, you know, it's like feeding him with a finger and a tube and it's like this whole weird way you might feed like a newborn goat. So I called the lactation consultant and I said, I don't think this is going very well. And um, I'd already brought him in for a weight check at a week and he'd lost weight, which is normal. At two weeks, babies are really supposed to regain their birth weight around that time. Still losing. And I said, okay. And so I talked to the lactation consultant again. I'm like, just keep going with the pumping. You're doing great. It's like, should I supplement? She means supplement with formula. And they're like, well, you, you, you know, you're right there. Just keep going. He really hadn't regained his birth weight by four weeks. And eventually the milk production picked up. But it also showed me as now looking back how much patients rely on what they're you know, medical experts say, I really thought that this lactation consultant was giving me the best advice. And I rode on what she said. I basically, she said, okay, keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to supplement. Like, what was I thinking? Why didn't I give myself the permission to to supplement? You know, and uh, that's the advice I would have given myself, but I certainly didn't take it. I don't think a lot of mothers do. So by now, this is probably sounding very familiar to you. You know, you have a medical problem with you or with your child. You are sure something is off, but the medical professionals do not seem to be taking you seriously. And then you start second-guessing yourself. Jessica had experienced that with her OB, with her lactation consultant, but she figured it would be different with her pediatrician since she was a pediatrician herself. You know, Hillary, I thought... I was really being smart by going to a pediatrician who had had four of her own children because I thought she would have that kind of insight um, of having taken care of four children herself. Um, and Marco had really, really bad reflux. Um, he Every time I fed him, he spit up. And, and I used to actually tell parents that usually it gets better at about six months. You know, so hang in there for the six months. And about that time, it starts to get better. Well, of course, Marcos did not get better in six months. It actually started to get worse. And even though I brought him in and they weighed him and he seemed to be gaining weight okay. When the pediatrician came in, I I just looked at her and I said, look, I, I know he's gaining weight, but this is not going well. 
And she looked at me and she said, well, he's not losing weight, so it's really not a problem. And I said, but it feels like a problem to me. I really feel him like he's worse. And she just kind of looked at me and she said, his reflux is your laundry problem, not his medical problem. What? <laughs> because what does I have, that mean? Oh, because I guess because I have to do laundry more often because he spits up on everything. And she knew I was a pediatrician. And I said, really? She said, yes, he's fine. Jessica wound up taking Marco to a gastrointestinal doctor who confirmed that the baby needed medication. But even after the reflux issue was resolved and Marco grew, he'd scream a lot. And Jessica couldn't figure out why. Just like before, the pros were not giving her the answer she needed. So one day, she found herself somewhere she never expected to be. At the library. You know, with my son in the infant carrier, like screaming. Um, I went through these self-help areas. Like, eyes puffy from crying moment. Um, first of all, I'm hoping, like, nobody finds me out here. Like, oh, what do you do? <laughs> As you're, like, pulling these books, like, baby whisperer off <laughs> Literally, baby whisperer. I thought, I thought, like, all my pediatric street cred is gone. Um, but I had to do it again, actually, when he be, when he was a toddler, just to convince myself that this was a little bit of who he was. That he was a bit spirited. That he's intense. That I hadn't raised him to be like that. I learned so much learning about temperament, and I thought. God, I really wish I could take back some of those early um, meetings with some parents where they would tell me things and I would have not wasted as much time asking them, you know, the questions that you ask in a, in a well visit, you probably know, like, is your child using a pincer grasp? Uh, do they stand? Do they smile? Can they hop on one foot? Can they hop on one foot? That's one of my favorites. Um, these are things that you can get through in about five minutes. I would have gotten through them so even quicker if I could have than to just ask them what their day-to-day -day life is like and to get an idea, do they understand what their child's temperament is, to commiserate with them if they need that. Yes, this is difficult. It is harder for you because of your child being more sensitive than maybe other babies. It may take some work and that's okay because some of it is just their personality. Do you think um, anything needs to change in training of, of pediatricians and maybe uh, doctors at large based on your experience? I, I do think that medical education does try very hard to get medical students and residents involved um, with patients. But at the same time, um, I, I've actually talked to a few pediatricians who are moms. And I think all of us feel like there's just something inherent to going through that process that the medical education just can't teach you. They just can't teach you that. There's just nothing you can do to simulate that. It's not like they can have you carry around a, you know, a, a pound of flour and pretend it's a newborn <laughs> like they do, you know, in those, some of those classes in high school, you have to carry around a 10 pound bag of flour and take care of it. You can't, it's not the same. You, you just, you can't simulate that. You can't simulate that fear and that love and that concern. 
you know, if you take care of children, if you give people advice on how to take care of children, you should, you should be able to trust your gut. And I didn't. Uh, after four years of medical school and four years of uh, residency and taking pediatric boards and passing them, I was definitely the most well-educated, terrible rookie ever. Jessica Franklin is, of course, not terrible. She's just like the rest of us, you know, trying her best. Sometimes feeling like she's nailing this parenting thing. Sometimes feeling in over her head. Jessica's story made me wonder, how can we get doctors to understand parents better? You know, how can we bridge that gap that she was talking about? Clearly, tasting gross medicine and carrying around sacks of flour doesn't work, right? But is there something that will? I bet you've got ideas and and we want to hear them. Submit them in the comments on the post for this episode at longestshortesttime.com. This podcast is a production of WNYC and The Longest Shortest Time. The show is produced by me, Hillary Frank, and Joanna Solitaroff. Jim Briggs is our engineer. Our theme music is by The Batteries Duo. Special thanks to Chris Bannon and Peter Clowney and to pediatrician Rachel Wadier for bringing this story to our attention. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. It doesn't matter if you listen to the show on iTunes. Those reviews actually do help us. I'll be back with a new episode in two weeks at three o'clock in the morning. And if you want to be like Jessica from today's episode and tell your story on this podcast, go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Prince donated this guitar. I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket, worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.